You're listening to the Stories Behind the Stars podcast. This podcast is dedicated to those who served in World War II and never made it home. We're a nonprofit organization with a mission of researching and writing a story for every American service member who was killed in World War II. That's over 400,000 individuals. Each one of those individuals has a story. We're going to find that story, write it, and put it into a common database, which will then build a smartphone app that will be searchable for individuals to read their story anywhere they are in the world. Today's episode is kind of special. My name is Tatiana Fallon, and I am a volunteer uh, for Stories Behind the Stars, and I'm here in today's episode I wanted to tell the story of my Uncle Myron. For those of you who are familiar with the podcast, I usually interview a researcher who's uh, done some research and told some stories. Um, but today, um, my grandmother passed away last week. And um, in honor of her memory and also in honor of the fact that my great uncle, who died in World War II, there's no one alive anymore that knew him alive. My grandmother was the last person who knew him while he was living. And now that her passing uh, just brought to me the reality of how quickly this generation is going. And um, pretty soon there won't be anybody alive who remembers these fallen. Um, And it's just really important for us to do this work. Uh, So what you're going to listen to today is actually an interview that I did with my grandmother back in 2017 had the opportunity to interview her for a project that I was doing. And um, so you'll hear her talk about what it was like to grow up during the Depression, uh, what it was like when the telegram showed up telling that her brother had been missing in action and then killed in action. Before we um, listen to my grandma's story, uh, my first memory of my uncle Myron is actually from my great-grandfather, his father. When I was little, my parents were lucky enough to house my great-grandfather in our home uh, the last few months of his life. He came to live with us, um, have very precious memories of playing games with him, going on walks for him, with him, and singing songs with him. And by his bedstand was a picture of a man in a sailor's outfit. And I remember... Uh, seeing that picture and and asking my grandfather, who is this young man? And he would always look at the picture and and say with very heavy heart, that's my son. He was killed in World War II. And I'm going to see him soon. That's my first memories of my Uncle Myron. Um, My my great-grandfather really did miss his son even though it was almost uh, half a century later after his son died that he was able to to pass on. Um, And so in this interview, my grandmother talks a lot about what her family went through and losing her brother. So my first question for you, Grandma, is what did you feel like when you found out the war started? Okay, I was 13 years old when the war started, and uh, President Roosevelt would have a fireside chat with the over the radio. We had no television, had no idea what a television was like. 
but we would listen to this, and he assured us that we will not be in war, right? So on a Sunday evening, as I was coming home from church, my brother comes running out, and he says, they bombed Pearl Harbor, and my heart went, yeah, yeah, because it was obvious to me that because they had been drafting a lot of men up until that time that I was going to lose friends. And I had a brother old enough to go. So um, it was uh, very frightening for me that it was obvious that because wars had been going on for centuries that we were in a dangerous situation even though I didn't live in Hawaii. Who knows whether we were going to be bombed? Who knows what was going to happen to me? And at 13, you're pretty unsure of what's going on out there. <laughs> so then how did it change what happened in your community? Did it change things right away? or? Well, it? of course, they started taking all the young men from 18 on up into the service. Uh, we went on. <coughs> They gave us out stamps, and there were certain things we could not buy unless we had enough stamps to use them. Uh, we could not buy, uh, we were using silk holes at the time, and they were making all of these uh, airplanes and all the things they needed for airplanes, and so we did not have silk anymore for their, because they were using for parachutes. So we used to paint our legs and make them brown, and so they would look like we had hose on, right? Um, <clears throat> so that was a big change in our life. Um, we had rationings, as I was saying, and sugar was rationed, and I have never figured out why, excepting, of course, we had a lot of imports, but Utah had their own sugar factories at the time. The gasoline was rationed, uh, but uh, we were really fortunate in our family because my father was over a business that had lots of trucks that delivered fruit, food, frozen food. And so as a result, he was given more uh, amount of gasoline to use than the average person around. So we at times got to go someplace that uh, the average person would not be able to go. So in that way, it did not affect me. However, um, my brother was killed in the war. Uh, several of my friends around the neighborhood, his, his friends were killed. And um, this was very frightening. And we didn't know next who was going to be the, we'd be told they had gone. Where were you living when it happened? Like I lived in Draper. I was raised on a farm there. And uh, so we had a 1,000 chickens. I knew I wasn't going to starve to death. <laughs> we had a big garden. Uh, we, had, we had a big we didn't, a cellar, I guess you know what a cellar is outside, where we'd put the potatoes and carrots and onions and so on in store. So as far as food, we, it was not fearful for us. Um, but for a lot of people, it was a whole different story. They didn't have what we had. So as, long, as far as that goes, that was comfortable for us. Oh, what did your farm look like? And what's there now? My house is still there. Oh, really? <laughs> My dad built the house, and yes, it's on 7th East, and it's a, um, if anybody goes on 7th East, from 123rd South, you go north on 7th East, and it's, it's got the spiked roof and a noble window in front and two doctors now serving there, and I would love to go in someday because we, we had coal in those days, and so 
they had got, opened the door into the coal chute. <laughs> I wonder how they cleaned that up. <laughs> but anyway, that's where I lived, and we were on uh, the, we were on a ten-acre lot at the time, but we had other acres. What did Grandpa Lewis do during the war? He was manager of Booth Fisheries, which imported uh, all kinds of fish from the from the West Coast, and uh, in fact, he. He had a big contract. McDonald's came in several years later, and he sold fish to them for their fish burgers. Uh, he's, he also sold to big hotels and uh, uh, places around that needed a large quantity of food. So he was a wholesale dealer rather than retail. So how old was Myron when the war started then? He was 17. and. Uh, he, he loved airplanes. He used to build airplanes. In fact, he was always borrowing my extra money so he could buy <laughs> airplanes. And he had little motors. And as a result of that, when he was 17 years old, he got his pilot's license. Wow, where did he get it? Uh, he, he would go out and take lessons out at an airport out here. It's not here anymore. But, and he, would, he learned to fly. So when he got into the... He, joined the Navy Air Corps just before he turned 18, because if you didn't, then they'd put you wherever you wanted. But there was a rule at that time, because airplanes are not like they are today. They were small. And if you were over uh, 5 foot 10, you couldn't be a pilot. And he was over 5 foot 10. That's really short. <laughs> like, that's like yep. <laughs> so uh, interesting rules that they had back then that they certainly don't need today. So. Was, where did he go for his basic training and those kind of things? Well, he was in a couple of places. He went first up to Idaho, and they had a, a he was in the Navy Air Corps. By the way, in those days, today we just have one big Air Corps. But in those days, you had the Army Air Corps, you had the Marine Air Corps, and you had the Navy Air Corps. Oh. So he joined the Navy Air Corps. And so they sent him first up to Idaho to be trained up there for basics, and then they sent him to um, Florida, where he, uh, they had to train him to be a navigator because he, was, he had to be on a bigger plane, and he still was under the rule that if you're over 5 foot 10, you can't be a pilot. So in spite of all of that, it was kind of a waste of education, wasn't it? How tall was he? He was six foot, just a little over six foot. So um, what did your parents think when he decided to join? Did they ever talk to you about that? It caused a lot of problems in my house <laughs> because my dad signed the papers. And he was going to have to go, let's just face it. But um, I stayed clear of it <laughs> because naturally, you don't know whether your child's ever going to come back because you've got to, when a war's on, it's a whole bunch different than when you joined the Navy today. So your dad signed the papers because he was too young? Because he was, yeah, he wasn't 18 yet. So Myron came to him and said, I want to join now. Right. Rather than be drafted? Right. So and a, a lot of young men did it. I, um, there were a lot of young men when I was going to high school that uh, would sign up before they graduated. So a lot of the young men that were in school with me in high school did not graduate at that time. So then what did your mom think about that, Grandma? What did Grandma Lewis think about it? Did she ever talk to you about that? 
it was something we kind of didn't discuss. Um, she was unhappy about it, but she finally had to come to grips with the situation. And speaking of that, you could go visit your young men when they were in training, and he was really a good-looking guy. I should have brought a picture. <laughs> he had girls all over him one day. I remember when I was, <laughs> he came home one day and he said, I wished I had a baseball bat. Mother says, what do you mean? She says, I could certainly use it on those girls sometimes. <laughs> so he had a girlfriend, and so my mother took her, and they went on a trip when he was in Wichita Falls for some other training, and they uh, went to visit him while he was there. So this was allowed if you could get transportation. Remember, we didn't have airplanes going through the air like we do today. You'd have to go on a bus or a train. Did did you ever feel um, resentment towards the Japanese or towards the Germans? Like, did, was that part of the culture at all here? Or? That's very interesting. You should ask that because that was the thing my mother was most angry at. She just really had some animosity, especially towards the uh, Japanese. Um, do you know I went to school with Japanese kids, and I was really upset when they moved all of those people out of California and brought them to the desert to live here in Utah. Are you aware of that? Mm -hmm. Hundreds of people were just displaced, and these people, some of them were born in the United States. Uh, there was absolutely, I'm sorry, but I'm really upset about that till to this day. That was a terrible thing to do. That was, did they do that to one German? No. So what was the problem? We still have the same, I'm going to get on my stool, but we still have the, the problem. Today you're a different color than me and I'm green and you're blue and we don't like any blue people in our community. It goes on and on and on. Um, I had a mission in Texas when I was young and I got on the bus one day with my companion and because I'm used to in Utah, go to the back of the bus, go to the back of the bus, you know, make room for the people that are coming in. So we headed to the back of the bus, and all of a sudden the bus went bang, just stopped dead. And the um, guy turned around, and he said, you get up here where you belong, or else you're going to get off the bus. That was going on during the service of the, these men. Uh, there was still all of this animosity because you're different than I am, and it's been carried on for so long. Uh, they had to deal with a lot of problems in the service because of this. They would have whole units who were black because the whites wouldn't deal with them, especially those in the South. Wow. So did, where, did you ever see the camps, or were they pretty far out in the desert? I never saw. I saw pictures of them. Uh, remember, we didn't have TV. It was just newspapers. Or they would uh, to talk about this. We got our news on the radio, but every Friday, we have a theater in Draper and uh, in other, other places, they had people who were with the Army and the Navy and so on, and they would be taking pictures of what was going on during the war. Then they would send them back to the United States, and if you would go for 20 minutes early, they would show all the pictures they'd been taken in the movies before they started whatever they were going to so show. So did you have to pay for it then? Was it like a Oh, it was just part of, the, of your ticket. Movie ticket. It wasn't separate at all. And it just, uh, it just went on. It was the same thing all the time. Uh, whatever you went to see, they would just show you there because we could hear it on the radio, but we were actually able to see it on the screen. 
of that time. So when did Myron get put overseas? You know, I can't remember that date. Was, he was went to he on? went to oh yeah he went to Hawaii first, and a lot of the young men who were sent to the Pacific would go to in the Navy would be shipped to Hawaii and then they would be signed the ships they were on, and he was not assigned to a ship, but he was actually assigned to a ground crew. We were at the time now we remember this is later on because he was just two years younger than I. Um, they, the, we were taking the islands away from the Japanese, but we had to have people man those islands because the Japanese were, they, they would make these big caves and they would hide in the caves. So actually when the war was over, we got a letter from him and he was in Mindanao over in the Philippines and he said, the Japanese don't know the war's over, they're throwing everything at us but the kitchen sink. And this is the way they were on all the islands as they took over. They would just find places to hide in the, and they were, the Japanese were dedicated to either win or die. That's, they all had that mentality uh, where the, uh, where the Russians, oh, no, Russians, listen to me, the Germans, they were bombed out to the point they were starving and they were freezing and, um, their whole mentality was entirely different from the Japanese. Uh, when they signed those papers, the Germans were glad it was over. They, uh, they were in terrible conditions over there, but it was different for the Japanese. That's the reason I think, I'm way beyond what you wanted to get to, but I think that's when they finally decided they had to use the atomic bomb. I, they didn't really want to do that, but it had to scare them bad enough that they would quit what they were doing. So where were you when you found out about the atomic bomb? Was it like pretty soon after it was dropped or? Oh, nobody knew about it before, excepting those who were working on it. Well, I mean like where were you when it, after it dropped? Like when you I, found out about I it? I remember the exact day. <laughs> That's, I, um, I was, I, we heard on the radio that they had dropped the atomic bomb and I had no idea. Most people didn't know what an atomic bomb was. You know what an atomic bomb is because it's been taught you for years. But that was like speaking in a foreign language to us. We had no idea uh, that they had been working on such a destructive item. And in fact, they didn't know how, how destructive it was. It wasn't until a long time after when people were dying on and on and on as a result of the fallout that they began to realize, wow, we really did a monstrous thing. What was the feel of the people? Like, were they, did they feel remorse for dropping the bomb or was it just like, oh my gosh, it's over awesome and didn't really think about it? I'm sure we, almost all of us felt the relief because now it would stop. And like I said, the Germans, you know, we, we had, the Germans were through in May, and this was in, what, the 6th of August, 1945. Uh, it wasn't until then that uh, we found something to stop this thing. We had, we couldn't see any hope beyond what was going on, because nothing was stopping them. They were an entirely group of people that we, we weren't used to the, having to deal with that type of mentality. So when was it that you first saw pictures of what it could do or what it do you Now you got to remember we don't have TV. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
So it would. Um, it was after the war, of course. Um, I remember. I'm trying to re recall what happened. Um, there was pictures of the the Japanese on the boat on the ship where they were signing the papers. I remember they showed those in the movies. So that's where I saw that. Then they began to show pictures of the destruction, but they, they didn't go in right away to the area where it was destroyed. They had, this is a big cleanup job. So um, Japan's a big island, and it was in the middle of the island, and well, when I was on the end, but um, they, they couldn't go in right away. It just took time. So for a good year after, we're seeing the results of what had taken place. And the same way with the Philippines, we began to see those men who were on that terrible march where so many of them died. I guess you studied that. And um, then we began to see the, the terrible looking of these thin men who were, were just dry, dying as they walked because they were so overcome by being starved to death and beaten to death and the terrible things. And then we began to see pictures of them and being told about the hospitals that were full of men who just absolutely could not deal with what had happened to them. Uh, it destroyed not only lives but minds of people. So how did, how did you find out about Myron's passing? Uh, actually, <clears throat> well, let me give you some background. So because of his position, um, he was in charge of making sure that the plane was in the right area and it was safe. And um, he, he had his own crew. There was a, f a five men on a bigger plane, and they didn't need them anymore. So they, he wrote home, and he said, I'll be home for Christmas. We used to go around singing a song. I don't know if you know it. I'll be home for Christmas. And we were just waiting for the day when he'd come home. The next thing we did is get a letter saying, they've taken me from my crew and they put me with a crew of other men to go out and on reconnaissance to check out the areas in which these Japanese are all held up. And they're still shooting down our planes. So instead of him coming home, his whole group of men that he'd always been with were all sent home, and he was singled out to be on that, those, that plane. So they were on this plane, and uh, they, the Japanese had... Sh now, this is after the war. This is January after the war, on the 6th of January on 1946. He thought he was going to be home in December of 45. Uh, so... He's out there, and three planes have been shot down by the Japanese who were hiding out four months after the war. I don't know how many people know that this kind of stuff was going on. So uh, we're expecting him home when um, I'm in college at the time, and so I'm not even home. And two uh, officers came to our door and ask, uh, my mother was there because it was in the middle of the day, and asked if they could come and talk to her. And they came in to tell her that he had been killed. Well, the first thing they do, they don't tell you that they're dead. He, they knew he was. But they came in and says he's missing. So um, then a week later, they, uh, they send a telegram and say that he was 
killed in action. And then after that, then we, the next thing that happened was very interesting. This brother of mine is different, uh, different than a lot of the sailors. And uh, coming to the door was two young men who were, had been in his group. And they don't live here. In fact, one of them, a couple of years from Colorado, one of the young, young men that came there to the house was from Colorado. And they came in to talk to my mother. I wasn't there. She told me later, because I'm still in school, but uh, said that they just came to tell her how sad they were because he says everybody loved him. And he says lots of times we'd get in terrible fights and arguments and you don't have enough to do, that's what young men do. <laughs> and he says he could walk in among them and talk to them and calm everybody down. He says they had never seen anybody could do something like that. And they so greatly admired him, which was a wonderful thing for my mother to hear. So anyway, um, we got a lot of letters after that from the different men that found out that he'd been killed which was a good thing. That doesn't always happen sometimes, you know. But because he was um, over these men, they really respected him. And so then we began hearing the real story of what had happened. And what had really happened was they, these three planes had gone down. They sent them out to find where the planes had gone down so they could find the men and the bodies. And they, they because of the underbrush. It's really thick in the Philippines. You know, you can't see down to the bottom because of all the trees and so on. So they were flying very, very low, trying to see what they could down there. And as a result of that, they hit the top of a mountain and the plane broke in half. He was in the middle and the, co the pilot, co-pilot were killed immediately. The, they had the ammunition in the back and the ammunition went off and killed one of the young men. But one of the young men was thrown from the plane. And my brother lived for a while because they, he said he had a broken neck. They could see it, broken his neck. But um, the, the young man that was OK, uh, he, uh, he was hurt really bad. And he climbed down the mountain until a Navy found him. And then the Navy, seeing him in his uniform, took him down to the naval base. And then as a result of this, the inf he gave them the information where they had seen the other planes and they found the other three planes and uh, got the men from there and they were all gone. Wow. One big question we have here is, what advice would you have for our generation? Or uh, the younger generation? What advice? Yeah, besides so shape up. <laughs> shape up, shape up, fly right. Um, I've watched a lot of people come and go. And the thing I'm noticing that's most disturbing to me is life has become so soft that we expect way too much. And uh, we are not organized enough to, in our head, in our life, to be able, if things got really bad, to know how to deal with it. And when I was growing up, I never heard of people having nervous breakdowns and having to go to counselors here and there and everywhere. And they just can't stand it. They can't sleep at night. They're so overwhelmed. Times aren't tough. But to hear them talk, they're sick. 
and it's because life is too easy. When you get really easy, that's when the tough quit being tough. I, I think we should quit complaining and whining. Uh, here, on, the, on the TV, I am so disgusted with what the media is doing. Um, we're just out to poke holes in people. Where is, where is the love for people gone? Where, where, when are we going to start saying, you're my friend, uh, I'm willing to help you, instead of walking off and leave you to hurt? That's, that's the way I feel about it, having watched what's going on. Uh, we need to care more about each other. We need to, it doesn't matter whether you've got the best looking clothes on in the world, what is that? <laughs> you know, we don't have to be in style, but everybody walks around with the same kind of things. They've lost their identity as human beings. Thank you for taking your time to listen to this episode. It's a dear one to me, um, and I really hope you enjoyed it. In closing, I wanted to share a few thoughts with you. I, uh, I feel like one of the main motivators behind all of our researchers doing this is feeling like we're continuing and being a part of history, uh, but also that we're honoring the memory of those who gave everything when they were so young. So if you've been moved at all today by today's story, really hope you'll do something about it. We really need volunteers. We have 400,000 stories to tell. That's, there's a lot of men. A lot of, a lot of stories. We also need other people to know about this. So taking the second to follow, to share, to, to get people to listen, super helpful. And then also, if you have the monetary means to do so, we could definitely use any donation is welcome. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.